So the reading this morning is Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. The Word of God says this, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Thanks, AP. Hey, guys. How's it going? Great to see you this morning um, and be with you. Uh, We have been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes uh, since the beginning of the year. And we've seen uh, this preacher, is what he's called, we assume King Solomon, who's on a quest in life looking for some lasting gain, some significance, some value, some satisfaction in this life under the sun. Basically, he's looking for a meaningful life. Is it to be had? And for the most part, he's been on this quest, he's been on this search, and he's done so kind of setting God to the side, right, setting God to the margin. And he's looked at how we work, all the activities that we have, our, you know, pleasure. He's looked at wealth, um, even wisdom from a human perspective. He's looked at time and justice and relationships. And so far, everything that he has found for, looked to for meaning, he's experienced to be like that breath that you see on a cold winter's morning that we've talked about, right? It's just left him wanting. It hasn't satisfied him. And so, as is often the case when we go through life on those same sorts of searches, when we go to those places where we feel really empty-handed, where um, what we thought would satisfy us didn't satisfy us, and we get to kind of the end of our rope, as it were, what we see this morning is the preacher turns where many of us turn in that same moment. He turns to religion. He turns to religion. And this passage is kind of drawing out this question in our heart. Why do you seek God? What are you after? You know, why are you here even this morning? Uh, I I propose to you there's actually two types of people in this world that seek after God. Uh, There are people uh, who seek after God because He is the prize, right? He is the end, so to speak. And then there are people that seek after God because He's a means to an end, right? He's a means to an end. Something else is the goal. Something else is the prize. And God is simply there to kind of help you along the path, to get you to where you actually want to go. Um, You could think of it like uh, when you go eat at a restaurant, if you can remember those days, right? When you would go and socialize with friends or family around a table at a restaurant, you know, there's always that waiter, that waitress that uh, you definitely want to be in tune with you, right? You want them to come by 
when you want them to come by. You want them to get the things that you need from them, but you don't want them to linger there, right? You don't want them to sit down and just join the table or something like that, right? You, you want them to deliver what it is that you want and then to kind of be on their way, right? And in the same way, that's, that's often how we can view God, like a waiter. He, we want Him to come to the table and deliver what we want when we want it, but then we're ready for Him to kind of leave so that we can go on with our life. And then there's the people who view God as the end, though. He, he's the one who's at the table with them. Right? He's the one that they want to be with and commune with. And so Solomon this morning, he's reminding us that God is real. And he is our heavenly king. He's not our waiter. He's not our personal assistant. He's not a cosmic backup plan. Right? He is a God to be feared and a God to be treasured. And so we kind of need to understand one critical thing before we even move forward into the text, uh, because these verses, um, they're dealing with how we relate to God and worship Him. And right out of the gate in verse 1, it says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And the house that this author is talking about is ancient Israel's temple. He's talking about going to the temple, the place where God dwelled amongst his people in a very special way, where they would come and they would make sacrifices, where they would worship God. It was basically the place where heaven and earth met, okay? And so at the time of this writing, this is a reference to that temple. And of course, today we don't worship at a temple, okay? Phonics is not a, a temple, okay? We, we realize that. There isn't a, a clear parallel between going to Phonics Factory and guarding your steps when you go to this building and going to the ancient temple or something. There isn't an exact parallel there, but something even more mind-blowing has happened. This reality is still here. We're taught through the rest of Scripture that through Jesus, anybody who's placed their faith in Him, that we are told that we are now the temple of God, that we are the temple of God. We read that when Jesus comes, He is God who's taken on human flesh, that He is fully God and fully man. He becomes this place of God's special presence in the world. That's why at Christmas, we remember that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And Jesus knows this, and He's told us this. He famously said to people in uh, John chapter 2, He said, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. And people are like, how is that possible? The temple we had took years and years to build. That's because Jesus is saying, I'm the temple. He's referring to his death on a cross that he experienced in the place of sinful humanity. And he's talking about his resurrection, that he's going to raise up his life on the third day, on Easter Sunday. And then we see that when Jesus ascends to heaven, he sends his spirit into the lives of every single person who ever places their faith in him. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 this, he says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So if you have this faith in Jesus, right, the Bible says that you are God's temple. And so the temple may not be phonics factory, but as we come together as God's people, we are declared the temple. So this is not a, a cheap event that we are a part of this morning. This is a, a glorious reality, you guys, that as God's people, we are the temple gathered together to worship Him. And so we are thinking about how to worship God this morning, but even, even more so, 
why we worship God. And so the three things that our passage is showing us is, uh, is, is first, that genuine worship listens. That genuine worship listens. It gives God your ear. You see that in verse 1. The second thing that we see is in verses 2 through 6. We see that genuine worship speaks intentionally. That genuine worship speaks intentionally. See that in verses 2 through 6. And then the third thing that we see is that genuine worship doesn't use God as a means to an end. It doesn't use God as a means to an end. Instead, genuine worship fears God, fears God. So in verse 1, we see an ear. In the last verse, we see fear. And in the middle section, we see that our words matter. Sorry, I didn't have anything that rhymed. I really tried. But um, ear, fear, and your words matter is what we see, okay? So maybe even intentional on my part. Um, Verse 1, genuine worship gives God its ear, right? Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. So the tone in this passage completely shifts as we've been walking through this whole book of Ecclesiastes, because we've been standing under the sun, and everything we found is vanity. But all of a sudden, we find in these verses that we are standing on holy ground, as it were. And because we are told what? Guard your steps. Well, what does that mean? How do you guard them? By listening. Notice it says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to where? The house of God. Uh, to draw near to listen is better. Right? So it's telling you to guard your steps. The way that you guard your steps is by listening instead of doing what? Offering the sacrifice of fools. Well, what's that? Well, it's not listening. I know that. It's not listening. It's referring to a religious person who performs acts that look genuine, right? But their motivations and their intentions in doing those things are self-serving. It's, it's, it's empty religion is what it is. So this genuine worshiper is someone who comes not to perform, but they come to listen. They come to listen. They want to they hear from God. Right? It's like we're all sitting around this table, and it's as if God were there at the table, and when a question is asked, He's the first person that we look to. Well, what does He think? I want to hear from Him. Right? So if you think about it, listening and what it is in and of itself, listening is humble hospitality, isn't it? It's humble hospitality. It's being hospitable to others, and in this case, it's being hospitable to God with your ear. It's welcoming in the voice of God into your life. And in order to do that, you have to have this sense of humility about you, meaning you have to pay attention to God and not be paying attention to yourself. It's what do you think? I want to hear what you have to say. I love the way that St. Augustine puts this. He, he gives this idea of humble listening in this image. He says, the more humble a person is, the more receptive and full he becomes. The more humble you are, the more receptive and full you become. Hills repel water, valleys are filled up. So he talks about the humble person being like a valley, right? The more humble you are, the more receptive and full you become, like a valley. 
But if you are not a listener, if you are not humble, if you are prideful, you are like a hill that repels water, right? You are unable to listen in that regard. So worship starts with listening, and the million-dollar question then is, how do we listen to God? Right? How do we listen to God? And you will find people out there that are going to tell you various things for how you listen to God, but let us never forget that fundamentally to listen to God is to open up His Word. Right? God has spoken and revealed Himself in several ways throughout history, and that has been culminated in His Word. In His Word, that's why the Bible is central to Christian worship. That's why we come together to open the Bible. That's why we have a call to worship and want to hear God's Word read for us. The Bible is central in everything that we do. And even as a church, our, our first distinctive is literally that Scripture is central to all that we do. That's what we say here at GBC. Why? Because we know that when we open up this book every single time, God is speaking. If I want to hear from God, I open up this book. I know that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it tells me that God's Word is, is, is His breath. That's breathed out by God. That Romans 10 tells me that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. That Jesus said, Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your Word is truth. Sanctify them, meaning make them more like me. Make your people more like me. How? Through your truth, right? Your word is truth. We read in Hebrews, it says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Hebrews 4 says, God's word is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. So every time we open this book, you guys, God is speaking. And the question then becomes, are we listening? Are we listening? Right? When we gather for worship, do we come actually expecting, expecting to hear from God? And I'm not talking about my words. I'm not talking about someone else's words. I mean, my job is to do the best that I can to just explain to you what this is saying, right? To be clear on this. So the goal of gathered worship is to hear from God. It's, it's to commune with Him. It's to sit at the table and listen. That's how relationships begin. But secondly, genuine worship speaks intentionally. We see that in verses 2 through 6. And there's really two different things we're told here. First of all is that we shouldn't be careless with our words. Verse 2 tells us not to be careless with our words. It says what? Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. We kind of get this idea. It's hard for me to listen if I'm talking. It's definitely hard for me to listen if I'm just talking a lot, right? This is pretty impossible. I think the only exception to this rule is when my wife is hanging out with her three sisters. Somehow they are all able to talk at the same time and listen to each other. It is like a miracle. It's amazing, and it works. It does work. Um, but for but besides that, I don't know of situations where you can just be talking and not listening, right? And so naturally, it goes to our mouths here. And you and I, we see here, we have this tendency in worship to think that our many words make us dear to God. Tozer says the same thing. He says, religion 
has accepted this monstrous heresy that noise, size, and activity make a man dear to God. The noisier I am, the louder I am, the more activity I have, the more words I speak, God receives me in a deeper way. That's not the gospel, that's religion. Right? So, so we're being told here not to speak too hasty or too excessively. In other words, we shouldn't be careless with them. Right? We see this uh, proverb of sorts in verse 3. We see this literary pattern repeated even in verse 7. What does it say? For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Right? This is a bit hard to understand. Um, let me just say, explain it by saying what this is telling you is basically the idea of business is activity, it's work, it's even stress. And so you know this, the busier you are, the more you work, the more stressed out you are, you have crazier dreams, right? You have more dreams, right? You see some heads nodding, okay? In the same way, the more you talk, the more prone you're going to be to foolishness, Right? And so we think for some reason that God is wowed and, and moved by our vocabulary or even the precision that we can have in nailing our lines as it were or that God somehow is impressed with our word count. But that's not the case in worship. And this is significant for us to consider because of how much we do talk in worship. I mean, just think about it. When you come to a place like phonics, you're speaking, right? You walk in, you greet people. You talk to people. We sing songs, right? Warren puts words in your mouth every week and says, say this, sing this, believe this. And so we take that seriously, right? And so we consistently ask, are we singing songs that are true and are we singing songs that are beautiful? Because if they're true and they're not beautiful, then we probably shouldn't sing them because there's a lot of true songs out there that are beautiful, and if it's beautiful and it's not true, we shouldn't sing it. Why? Because our words matter. We don't want to be careless with them. We pray prayers to God. We preach words. And Ecclesiastes warns us, saying that in a certain way, these things that we say could be the sacrifice of fools. So we shouldn't be careless with our words. And why is this so, so important? Verse 2 tells you, what does it say? For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So why should you be, not be careless with your words? Because God is in heaven and you are on earth. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it means we need to be careful to remember that we are who we are talking to and what position we are in compared to him. Right? This, this phrase, God is in heaven, that's not a reference to God's address. Okay, just to be really clear, this is a statement about who God is. So we must see God as he truly is in his proper place. And when you do that, your words will be fewer. And that's actually a liberating and beautiful thing, right? Well, one pastor that I admire over in Ohio said, um, he said this, he says, I don't know is a worthy answer. Help me, Lord, is a worthy prayer. Uh, how can I help? That's a worthy question. Forgive me. That's a worthy plea. I was wrong. That's a worthy perspective. I want to be more like you, Jesus. It's a worthy goal. Less words can sometimes carry the most worth. 
And we tend to find ourselves praying those kinds of things when we see who God is in position to us. So secondly, besides being careless, we're told not to be insincere. Verse 4, what does it say? When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. So in the Old Testament, a vow uh, was a promise that people would make to God um, and say, I'll do this for you, God. And often it was made in return for God's favor. That's how people often thought of it. I think of a good example of this would be in the book of 1 Samuel, where you see Hannah, who is unable to have kids, and this is just destroying her, right? And she's become a mockery in some ways. It's just crushing her. And so she goes and she makes a vow to God and says, if you will give me a son, I will give him to you all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. That's talking about this son, if God were given to him, she will give this son back to God and he will serve in the temple, right? So that's the image. And so this actually happened. And so you have the book First Samuel, right? Which is her son. So this actually happened. And so we know that vows aren't a bad thing. They're just meant to be kept. And we see Hannah that actually keeps this vow. And I think for us, vows are things that we still make today. I tried to think of some vows that we make, and I came up with five basic vows that we make. We make wedding vows. Right? You stand before somebody else, and you say, I will be faithful to you as long as you both shall live. No matter if we're rich or poor, if you're sick, if you're healthy, no matter what, I will be faithful to you. We make that vow before God and other people. We, we, we take our children and we stand before churches and we dedicate them saying, I want to raise this kid to know Jesus. And the church says, we want to help you do that. Right? We, we do these baptism vows, basically, where people are baptized when they understand and receive the gospel, that Jesus is their Savior and Lord, and they're baptized and they declare their allegiance to Jesus. That's a vow. We take membership vows, in a sense, where we say, I want to commit my life to you to help you grow, and, and you're going to commit your life to me and help me grow, and we're going to give, and we're going to go together, and we're going to serve together. We make these commitments, these vows, and we make elder vows. You know, you've seen Rob Strickland, and uh, um, you've seen Mike Dahl, and uh, coming up here, Josh Matthews, to take elder vows. They stand before a church, and they promise, I will, I will do these things, and I want you to hold me accountable to that. So that involves a lot, just alone, those five things, marriage, parenting, following Jesus, being a part of a church. Guys, those matter. Those words matter. Our words matter to God. I think the temptation is to downplay the seriousness of these vows when it comes time to fulfill these things. We can take these promises and view them as like a bargaining chip with God, right? So we basically say to God in our vows at times, hey, God, uh, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. And then God is good and gracious and he scratches your back and you turn back to God and you say, oh, my hands are full. Maybe tomorrow, right? Maybe next time. I mean, how many of us have said something like, God, if you get me out of this one, right? I'll, I'm not gonna do that anymore. And God's kind and he goes, well, I don't want you to do that anyways, but okay, you know. 
Well, I'll, I'll even, I'll go back to church, you know, like we've probably all thought similar things. I'll go on that mission trip or something. Um, you know, God, if, if she just gives me her phone number, I'll go back to youth group or something, right? If you land me that job, I promise I'll become a missionary in the second half of my career, you know? We make promises because of what we think we can get out of them. Or perhaps we make a promise because we think it's the right thing to do, but then life moves along and we process, I didn't really think that through. I can't do this. And so we don't fulfill what we promised to do. And we go, oh, it was just a mistake. And that's exactly what he says in verse 16. Don't let your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger, it was a mistake. Right? It's still your word. Right? It's still your word. But more than just being your word and more than it being viewed as a mistake, we're told here that it's, it's actually sinful and that God's not cool with it. Right? We see empty promises are a sin against God. And so we must be honest here that these verses 2 through 6, we understand that our words matter. We've all been hurt by words. We've all been left empty-handed by someone's promises they didn't fall through with. We know that words matter, but at the end of the day, we have this general understanding like they're just words. Right? I mean, don't we all understand when we say things and we don't follow through with them? What's such a big deal? Like, why would this say, God will be angry at my voice and destroy the work of my hands? We fail to remember that God gets rightfully angry at our sin, even our sin of speech. That's why it says God's angry at our voice. It's the sin of that careless, excessive, and empty speech. So if our hands are offering up this worship to God, these, these sacrifices, if you will, then, then why should he not destroy the work of our hands? Meaning, reject that worship, right? Reject it and make it futile in the end. I mean, why, why does keeping our word matter to God? Doesn't God understand? Can he just let it go? Well, the reason is here, I think two reasons, really. First of all, guys, God is a God of truth, and you and I are his image bearers. So you and I are called to reflect God, and so if whatever God does endures forever, and if God keeps every single promise that he has ever made, and he is our highest goal and our highest good, and, and in seeking him as our highest goal and our highest good, we reflect him to the watching world, then what we say matters, because we are to image him. And if his word matters, then our words should matter. So we image him by keeping our word. But secondly, guys, when we break, whoever it is that we break our promises to, we often think of those people as less important than we are. We think of those people as less important than we are. We discover in that moment that they were an object. They were a means to an end. I made the promise because I need you to think this way about me for a moment. I made this promise because I needed you to do this for me in this moment. Comes time for me to follow through. Ah, I got my thing. All right, when we consider our promises, as we realize something very important about worship, we realize that worship has way more to do with what you and I do when no one is looking than what you and I do when everyone's watching. Worship, when we gather and everyone's watching, that matters. 
But fundamentally, worship has way more to do with what you and I do when no one is looking than what we do when everyone's watching. And we know this here because of our words and what we're saying. So how in the world do we become humble listeners and careful talkers in public and in secret? What well, has everything to do with fear? And we see lastly that genuine worship doesn't use God as a means to an end. What does it say? How does it end? Verse 7, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. That last phrase is really encapsulating all of this. It's really drawing your eyes back up to verse 1. And you know this because of the repetition in verse 3 and in verse 7, but in verse 3 you don't have the conclusion that you have in verse 7. It's added here, and so we know that this is the key of this passage and what it means to worship. Why would we be told here that God is the one that you must fear? Well, think back up to verse 2 and how the preacher told us to look up and notice that God is in heaven and that I am on earth. Remember that? Do you see that? So by being told to fear God, do you realize what you're being invited into in this verse? To fear God, you're just simply being invited into reality. That's what you're being invited into. To understand who you're speaking to, who we are not listening to, and who we are trying to use as a means to an end. You must fear God. Why? Because at the end of time, you will fear God. This is, this is natural to us. I mean, if you don't believe me, just think about a time that you went to a place that you didn't think you belonged, but you were invited to go there. You got invited to go somewhere and you, you showed up and you're like, man, I, I do not belong here. The people in this room are, are way more important than I am. Right? Have you ever been in a spot like that? Made you kind of feel small? Uh, the, the clearest memory of mine, I thought it was fitting for Super Bowl Sunday, was uh, 2009. I got invited to go watch the Niners play in, in Candlestick Park, their old football stadium on Monday Night Football. And I got invited... Um, by my grandfather's really close friend who was extremely wealthy. He had his own skybox. He's like, hey, I just want you and you to come on and, and join us in the skybox, you know, for this Monday night football game. It was my first game ever, and I show up, and oh my gosh, I felt like I do not belong here. All the people in that room had way more money than I'll ever see in my lifetime, and so I was very quiet. I was not someone who would speak unless I was spoken to. I'd even sit there and watch the game. I wouldn't even cheer because I was like, what are they going to think if I cheer? Am I embarrassing them or something? They weren't even watching the game. They were just whining and dying, enjoying themselves. They weren't very good football team that year. But still, at the same time, like they weren't even paying attention and I'm locked in. We had the, they had their own special concession stand and I, I walk out at halftime to get a coffee and I bump into my childhood hero, Steve Young. I didn't go, Steve, let's sit down and chat. No, I know better. I know that unless Steve says, hey, what's your name? Let's talk. Then I will talk. Right? You know in those moments where you're like, I do not belong here, but somehow I was invited here. You have that really keen sense. Man, my words are going to be few. I, I do not belong here. That's probably not Steve Young and the Niners for you, but you've probably been in similar spots, right? You're not going to be super chatty. You don't want to appear foolish. You don't want to overstep your bounds. You're just grateful to be there. So just ask yourself the question, who are you always around? 
Who are you always around? Well, that would be God, right? Who is holy. He is utterly unlike us. He is set apart in every way, in beauty, perfection, majesty, and glory. And because he is so holy, when a sinner enters into his presence, he is described in the Bible in multiple places as a consuming fire. That is often the image given to God's presence. That image of fire, it's a helpful image, isn't it? Because how do you behave around fire? You respect it. You revere it, don't you? I mean, how many times did your parents tell you as a kid, don't play with fire? We'd go camping and my parents were constantly telling me to respect the fire, right? They didn't mean I should stand up and salute the fire or something. That just meant I need to be cautious around it. I can, I can enjoy it. I can enjoy its benefits, right? I can, I can look at it, but I, would, I was to approach it with fear, right? That sense of reverence. When you light a candle, you pay attention to how close your finger gets, Right? You revere it because you know that there are consequences for being careless. And then if that fire gets out of hand, you'll really be afraid. So when we approach a holy God, we do so with reverence and awe, knowing that we are invited into a place that we really don't think we belong. We are invited into his presence and we are invited there on his terms. We are invited there by his grace And we are invited there for his purposes. But if you have no faith, you will not fear God at all. Or if you see God as a means to an end, you will view him as a hazard, right? Not as one to enjoy. Because you will think, oh, I don't want to screw this up or he'll burn me. I I won't get the thing that I really want. But if you fear him because you truly see God as the end and not the means, then you'll be on to something. You'll begin to see what you're invited into that Hebrews 10 describes for you when it says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, right? By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. And since we have a great Priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession, right, that speech of our hope, without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And when we're talking about the call to fear God, Jesus has transformed that in a whole new way in a way that John Newton describes in his famous hymn that everybody on the planet knows, Amazing Grace. How does the line go? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Have you ever thought about that line? God's grace taught my heart to fear, to look up and see the God who is in heaven. He opened my eyes to, to look at myself, and the position I was in. And that drove me into the arms of Jesus as my refuge. And that grace relieved my fears. Jesus didn't become just my buddy at that point, but I fear God in a whole new light. I think I've said it to you before, but the idea of religion kind of fearing God says, I messed up, 
dad's going to kill me. And many of us view God that way. I said that thing. I didn't fall through empty promises. You might be feeling that this morning. I've screwed up big time. Dad's going to kill me. God's going to kill me. But when you've run into those arms of Jesus, when you enter that place that you know you don't belong, but his grace covers you and relieves that fear, when you screw up, you say, I messed up. I need to call dad. I need to go home. So back to our initial question, guys, why do you seek God? Why, why do you seek God this morning? I mean, really, why? What are you after? Are you after something from God? Or are you after God? God can easily become a means to an end, and I suggest to you that one way that you know if this is true is if you don't get the provision that you're wanting from him, if you don't get the miracle that you're looking for, and in turn your heart grows bitter towards God, God has become not the end but a means to an end. If you want to know if God is a means to an end, just examine those fears. Examine your losses. Examine your empty-handedness. Examine your desire for these different things. Maybe it's physical health. It's saying, I'll seek you, God, as long as you keep everybody I know healthy. If that doesn't happen, what do we do with that emptiness? It's seeking him. You thought maybe if I went to Jesus, my emotional health would always be better, right? So I'll seek you, God, as long as you make me feel good. We seek him for social reasons. God, I'll seek you as long as I can belong in this group. Even spiritual reasons. God, we will, we'll, we'll seek you if you give us this. We can use God in ministry. Even as a church in a season like this, to be really straightforward, we could say, God, would you give us a building? We'll do this. We'll do whatever. Oh, he's not a means to an end. When we love the gifts of God over the person of God, that is a big problem for us. We often think, God, I need you to do this thing. God doesn't want our eyes fixed on the provision, but to look up to him as the provider and to keep our eyes there. So this morning, guys, as, as we think about our religious motions and our empty words, we realize we need grace. We need it. And so one of my all-time favorite quotes is by the late Jerry Bridges. It says, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. If you feel that right now, this is one of my worst days. You are not beyond the reach of God's grace. And he says, your best days are also never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. We need God's grace, and we are offered that grace this morning in Jesus. Because we read in Isaiah that he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was a lamb that was led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. And they made his grave with the wicked, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Guys, Jesus never spoke a false word. 
He never made an empty promise. He never went through the motions trying to use his father. Yet he suffered and opened not his mouth because I've too carelessly opened mine. He he is the one that was raised up on a cross that bridged that gap between heaven and earth, the God in heaven to me on earth. He's bridged that gap, becoming the gracious way for us to commune with God. So I suggest to you this morning, if, if you know God, if you're a follower of God, if you want to see a revival in our city, if you want to see a revival in this place, it begins with God's people not using him as a means to an end, but realizing that he is the end. And when we see that, we sing. It's his grace that teaches our hearts to fear. And it's grace, our fears are relieved. Let's all stand together as we pray. God, I pray this morning that you would have our ear, that we would live lives in public and in private, that long to hear your voice. That truly believe that listening is better than speaking. And so, Lord, um, I pray that you would make us listeners, a community that listens to you. God, help us to then be a community, Lord, that sees you for who you truly are and for who we truly are. And help us, Lord, to worship at the feet of Jesus to run to his arms, seeing all the work that he's done for us, that that we truly, God, could even speak to you, that you would have our ear and we would have yours. God, you are our father, and it's because of Jesus that we can even say that's true. And so, Lord, would you teach our hearts to fear and we experience that grace of Jesus that relieves that fear. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your love for us in Christ. And we know that we've loved because you first loved us. And so we are just in awe of you, God. And in all your glory and all your holiness, that you would come and that you would redeem us, that you would make a way. Help us to live these lives of worship now. Would it begin in this moment? Would it begin in the days ahead? In Jesus' name, amen.